We've been working through the Gospel of Mark, and we will be in Mark chapter 10. But I'd like to ask you to turn to Mark chapter 8 to begin with this morning. Mark uses the first seven chapters of his Gospel to prove that Christ is the God-man. That He has power to do anything because He is God. And so what you'll find in the first seven chapters is that that Mark records that Jesus had the authority to, and then it, it lists the things that He had authority to do. He had authority to teach. He had authority to heal the sick. He had authority to cast out demons, demons to, to feed thousands of people. He had the authority to walk on water, to calm the storm, to, to, uh, and even to raise the dead. Jesus has authority. And so what we find in the first seven chapters <clears throat> and part of the, 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 the eighth chapter, we have um, Jesus showing His authority over all things. That He is the Son of God, the, the Promised One, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And yet, in the middle of chapter 8, it seems like we have a transition in the Gospel. All the stories that, that Mark recorded previous to uh, the middle of chapter 8, he had been recording to prove a point that Jesus is the Messiah. But then he transitions in chapter 8 and he starts talking about uh, the disciples and their need to follow Him and to serve Him. Uh, let, me, let me just summarize the, the remainder, uh, or at least chapter 8, verse 14, all the way till our passage today, the end of chapter 10. I want to summarize the events. And what I want you to do is notice how many times you hear of Jesus doing a miracle in, in these events that are recorded in chapter 8, verse 14, through chapter 10, verse 52. Okay, notice how many times Jesus does a miracle. Beginning in chapter 8, verse 14, Jesus rebukes the disciples for their lack of understanding. Remember, they went out on a boat. They said, Jesus... We don't have, or they're talking among themselves. Amongst themselves, they say, we, we only have one loaf of bread. That's not enough to feed all of us. And so Jesus rebukes them. Don't you remember who I am? Did you forget? I'm the one who just fed thousands of people. Chapter 8, verse 22, Jesus heals a blind man in two stages. First, He gives him partial sight. Then He gives full sight. Chapter 8, verse 27, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Some say Elijah, some say the prophet, one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am, Peter? And he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. Chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus predicts His death and resurrection. Chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus fails to understand. or I'm sorry, the disciples fail to understand what Jesus is talking about with regard to this resurrection and this death. Chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus teaches about the cost to, cost to follow. Chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus reveals His nature on the Mount of Transfiguration. Shows a little bit about who He really is. Shows His glory to Peter, James, and John. Beginning in chapter 9, verse 14, we have them coming down from the mountain and He casts out a demon. With uh, chapter 9, verse 30, He again predicts His death. Then the disciples in verse 32 fail to understand. And then in, in verse 33 and following, Jesus talks about the cost to follow. In chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus avoids the trap that the Pharisees set for Him and teaches about marriage and the importance of it. Beginning with chapter 10, verse 17, He teaches the rich young ruler and the disciples about the impossibility of, of earning eternal life. 
And then chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, he predicts his death again, followed by the disciples again, failure to understand. And then Jesus talks about the cost to follow in verses 38 through 45. And then we come to our passage that we'll look at today where Jesus heals a blind man. Okay, so with all those events that are recorded in those three chapters, how many miracles were there? I mean, we have the miracle of the transfiguration. Okay, take that out. But as far as the miracles that he's performing among people, seems like most of his time here in these three chapters are spent teaching. Whereas in the first part, yes, he was teaching, but, but he was spending a lot of his time doing miracles. In fact, in, in this small section of Scripture, in these three chapters, we have only a couple miracles. You have the two healings of the blind men that basically become bookends, I think, for this section of the Gospel. And you have the casting out of the demon when he comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And you have the revealing of himself and uh, revealing his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. But other than that, it's mostly just teaching, isn't it? And yet in the first seven chapters, or the first seven and a half chapters, you had 16 miracles recorded. Things like Jesus healing the sick, raising the dead, and so on. And so now, now what, what it seems that Mark is doing is he's transitioning in chapter 8 and he's saying, listen, there's a different point that I'm trying to make now. Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, he's proven that with all of these miracles that he's done. But now, Jesus is to be served. And, and Jesus will die. And he, this is what he's trying to explain to the disciples and I believe to us by extension. By the way, there are only two more miracles left in Mark's Gospel. That is, when Jesus causes the fig tree to wither, and then when He raises from the dead, when He is resurrected. And so I'm arguing that, that Jesus' purpose in performing those miracles in the first seven chapters was to show His supreme authority. That He, is, he has power over all things and He demands to be worshipped because He is the promised Messiah. But the purpose in performing these last several miracles here in chapters 8 through 10 is different. And I believe it is to teach the disciples something about their condition. And that's why I think he bookends this section with a healing of the blind man and then a healing of the blind man at the end of it. Now, let me have you turn to chapter 8, to back to chapter 8, verse 22. This first healing of the blind man in chapter 8, verse 22 comes on the heels of the disciples' failure to understand. Okay, in chapter 8, verse 14 through 21, the disciples go out on the boat, they, they forget to bring bread, and they're worried about how they're going to get their next meal. And then notice the story to follow, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored, and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Now, when we studied that passage we ask the question, why would Jesus heal in two stages? 
Was it because Jesus didn't have the power to do it all in once? He just needed a little bit of extra time. He had to put a little bit more effort into it. And we obviously we dismissed that sort of thinking. We came up with the answer that Jesus healed in two stages because He was showing the disciples a point. Saying, listen, disciples, Peter had just got done saying, Jesus, You are the Messiah. Okay, partial sight. They're starting to see now. They've got this blurry, blurred vision of who Christ is. In fact, if you look at the three predictions of Christ's death, when Jesus comes and says, listen, I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. They're going to kill me. And then I'm going to raise from the dead three days later. The first time, the disciples don't understand. Peter rebukes him. Jesus, that is not true. Jesus says to him, Peter, get behind me. Get, actually, he says, Satan, get behind me. You are acting on behalf of Satan. So you don't understand what's going on here. I will die. See, they had no category for a crucified Messiah. From their understanding of the Old Testament, there was going to be a Messiah that would come and reign as the King of Israel. And that's what Jesus was supposed to do. He was supposed to fill that spot, but now He's saying, I'm going to die? How can this be? Don't talk like that, Jesus. So then Jesus tells them a second time. And again, they, they fail to understand, but they're afraid to ask Him. So they don't ask. And then the third time, Luke tells us, after the third prediction, that they still don't understand. And it wasn't until after His death and resurrection that the disciples looked back and recognized what Jesus was doing. That He was predicting, yes, His death and that He would have to die. They, did, they had no category for a suffering servant a suffering Messiah, even though the, the Old Testament did talk of it. And so, this record of the blind man here in, in chapter 8, verses 22-26 shows that the disciples need to have sight, yes. And it needs to come from God, yes. But, but God doesn't give full sight. He doesn't give you everything all at once. He gives you the ability to see where this blind man says, I see like trees walking, men are like trees walking around. But then God has to do this continual work where He continues to change us so that we can see more clearly. And in fact, we won't see completely clearly until we come to the next life, right? When we will see Jesus face to face, face when we look back like the disciples and, and recognize all the purposes and and the the meanings behind what was going on in this life. So so there is a sense in which we have some sort of blurred vision. I think that's why this miracle is recorded, not necessarily to to record the authenticity of Jesus as the Messiah, although that is true, but to record the failure of the disciples to see. I think that's what's happening in chapter 10 as well. We have this story in chapter 10 following uh, the story of James and John coming to Jesus and say, saying, how can we be put in a position of authority in the kingdom? How can we be great? And Jesus tells them, listen, you don't understand what greatness is in my kingdom. Greatness to me and, and to my Father is service. And so you need to be willing to go through the cup of suffering that I am going to go through and be willing to be baptized with the baptism that I have been baptized with. That is, the baptism of death. 
that this suffering is going to be so drowning. It's going to come over me so much so that I will drown in it to the point of death. Are you willing to do that? The disciple says, we are able. But Jesus shows them they still don't understand because the disciples follow this up in verse 41 with their indignation with James and John because they wanted to be in that position. And so now we come to our passage in Mark chapter 10, verse 46. Then they came to Jericho, and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, and a large crowd, uh, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up, he is calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Now one of the main reasons I think this, this event is recorded right behind the previous event is the connection that Mark's, Mark makes with the two questions. Notice the question in verse 51 that Jesus asked. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? Notice back in chapter 10, verse 36. This is James and John. They come, Jesus, will you do whatever we ask of you? Verse 36. And he, Jesus, said to them, What do you want me to do for you? So we have the disciples and Bartimaeus asking the same question. Or or Jesus asking the same question of them. What do you want me to do for you? The disciples are thinking about themselves and how they can be put into a higher position Bartimaeus is thinking about himself. Yes, he wants to regain his sight, but but he's doing it with on the basis of his faith in Christ. So what we must understand is that if we are going to be disciples of Christ, we have to put our faith in Him, recognizing our own worthlessness. I want to show you five truths from this passage, five truths about being a disciple of Christ. Number one, committed disciples of Christ recognize their own worthlessness. Disciples of Christ recognize their own worthlessness. Verses 46 and 47. Notice the location that they're, they're uh, coming to. They had been in uh, Judea, in the area of Perea, where Herod was the governor at that time. That was when uh, the Pharisees came up to him and tried to trick him by asking him about divorce and remarriage. And Jesus uh, they, they did that because Jesus was in the territory where Herod was the governor. And where Herod had already put John the Baptist to, to death, be, well, first into prison because of what he had said, and then finally to death. Uh, and so they wanted to incite a little bit of a riot there with, with what Jesus had to say. So they come from there. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is only a few miles away. In fact, it's 15 miles northeast of, uh, or southwest of, of Jericho. This is not the same Jericho as you read about in the Old Testament. Remember that that city was given to desolation and permanent destruction. No city would ever be built there again. 
This is a uh, a rebuilding of the city in a different location, two miles south of the old one. And so uh, they come down here through Jericho. Jesus is on a mission. He's ready to go to the cross. And He has a large crowd following Him. This is probably the same crowd in verse 32. They're, they're probably heading down to Jerusalem for Passover. Passover was obviously an important uh, time for Jews where they would come to Jerusalem and celebrate this event. And so they would go to Jerusalem. They're probably following this great teacher of the Jews, Jesus Christ. We come across this blind man, this blind beggar, and his name is Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus simply means, for those of you who are interested in the Greek background, son of Timaeus. There you go. All right, it's right there in your text. Bartimaeus, bar means son of, so son of Timaeus. Um, the custom of the blind beggars were simply to find a spot in the road to to get the most amount of income. So you can imagine that this was a good place and a good spot and a good time of the year for him to be sitting because you had all of these uh, should-be God-fearing Jews coming down to celebrate the Passover. And so he's probably on a busy road where Jesus obviously is going through and, and begging, begging for money, begging for food. And we notice this helplessness in verse 47. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He begs for mercy. And then when the, the people reject him, they sternly rebuke him saying, be quiet. He still continues because he recognizes that he is helpless on his own. He can't do anything. He's a blind man. And so the point is, if we are going to be disciples of Christ, we need to recognize our own helplessness. That apart from Christ, we are nothing. We are exactly like this blind beggar. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn. They, they recognize the grief that, they, that is there, for they will be comforted. Chapter, Mark chapter 10, verse 15 um, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. He's teaching the disciples there, showing them that, listen, you need to come like a child. The most helpless person in all of their society comes to, comes to me with open arms because they have nothing to offer. They can't offer a great uh, amount of productivity and resources. They don't own anything. They come helpless before God. And God's saying, listen, if you're going to come to Me, you need to recognize your own worthlessness. That you are like this blind beggar. That you and I are both are like that. So first, disciples of Christ recognize their own worthlessness. Number two, disciples of Christ recognize who Christ is. Verse 47. Notice what He cries out at the end of the verse. Jesus, Son of David. Have mercy on me, son of David. Now, this is a phrase that Jesus used of himself in chapter 12. Let me have you turn there. Chapter 12, verse 35. And what we need to understand is, is there any significance to what this blind beggar is saying? Or is this just kind of a tagline or a nickname that Jesus had? What, is there any significance to what he is saying? And I would suggest to you that there is significance to what he's saying that this blind beggar recognized that this is the Messiah. The Son of David is actually a messianic phrase. 
Notice what Jesus says of Himself in chapter 12, verse 35. And Jesus began to say, as He taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah that is, is the Son of David? And verse 36, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Jesus in verse 36 quotes from Psalm chapter 110. Psalm 110 verse 1 it, uh, is where Jesus draws this from. And Jesus said, uh, or, or David at that time in Psalm 110 is saying something about his descendant. He's saying that my descendant, the son of David, that is a descendant in my line, is going to be my Lord. Notice what David says again, verse 36. The Lord, that is the Father, God the Father, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my, your enemies beneath your feet. There's a promise here that David had from, uh, I believe, 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he would be a great nation and that his descendant would crush the serpent. And so what David is saying is that the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, my descendant... Now, normally, David wouldn't say that his son was greater than him because David was the king. Why would he have a greater son? And yet here he says, my Lord. He calls him my Lord. And that is because he recognized, recognizes that, that the promised Messiah is going to come through his line. So back to chapter 10, verse 47. The Messiah, on the one hand, would be David's son several millennia later, but, but nevertheless in his succession. But on the other hand... He would be so great that David would have to call him my Lord. So the point here is that the son of David, when, when this blind beggar calls out, Son of David! He's saying, Jesus, I've heard about you. I've heard what you have done, that you have healed the blind, and that only the Messiah can heal the blind, because the Old Testament promised that. That you are the Son of David. That you are the Messiah. The Promised One. The Christ. And then in chapter 10, verse 51, he also calls him Rabboni. This is, uh, simply means my Master. This is the same uh, term that Mary Magdalene uses at the garden tomb following Jesus' resurrection in John chapter 20, verse 16. He calls him my Master. She calls him my Master. And here... He recognizes who Christ is. So if we're going to be disciples of Christ, not only must we recognize our own worthlessness, but we need to recognize who Christ is. All right, number three. Disciples of Christ turn in faith to Christ, even despite opposition. Verses 48 through 51. Disciples of Christ turn in faith to Christ, even, in, even despite of opposition. Notice the opposition that he receives in verse 48. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he recognized his need for persistence. You know what? I'm going to call out again. And so he says at the end of verse 48, same term that we looked at before, Son of David, Messiah, have mercy on me. And we see that Jesus recognizes his need in verses 49 through 51. But notice what Bartimaeus does not ask for. Okay, Jesus says, what do you want me to do? Verse 51. Notice what He does not ask for. He doesn't ask for more money. 
He doesn't ask for the ability to deal with this situation. He asks for uh, his sight. He wanted to receive his sight. He was really straightforward with Jesus. And when Jesus stops and calls this man to him, verse uh, verse 49, Jesus stopped and called him there. He basically is rebuking the crowd. He's saying, listen, don't tell him to be quiet. I want him to come to me. This man is coming to me in faith. And, and so disciples of Christ turn in faith to Christ. Now we'll see more about... Um, Bartimaeus' faith here at the end of the the passage. But let me uh, point your attention to number 4. And that is verse 52. Disciples of Christ, get up and follow Christ. When someone becomes a a disciple of Christ, that's what disciple means, a follower. They don't just accept what He's given them and say, hey, I'm all set. Thank you. That's all I needed. They get up and follow Christ. And I think Bartimaeus is an example for the disciples and us to follow. If we're going to be disciples of Christ, then we need to be willing to get up and follow Christ. Notice how he does this, verse 50. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. This cloak was an outer garment, or also known as a second tunic, which for him would have served as maybe his bedding that he would lay on. And it shows that he had a willingness to, to give up this most important garment and, and become a disciple on a mission. Be willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. Um, and then Jesus gives him his sight back. He, give, he gives him his uh, physical sight and he gives him spiritual sight. Notice verse 52. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. I think what Mark is recording here is that two things happened here. Both he regained his physical sight and his spiritual sight. The reason I say that is because of what Jesus said to him. Notice again what Jesus says. Go, your faith has made you well. That phrase, made you well, in the Greek is actually saved you. Your faith has saved you. It's the idea of, of receiving salvation. Yes, of physical sight, but, but, but of also of spiritual sight. That This man had the true faith in Jesus Christ to receive, um, to receive genuine conversion. No one is too blind for the Messiah to heal. No one is too blind. Bartimaeus was seeing the truth about who Jesus was. He calls out Son of David twice and Jesus heals him to show him that he had his faith in the right object, Jesus Christ. It wasn't in himself. It wasn't in the amount of works that he had done or built up over time. His faith was put in Jesus Christ. That's where it ought to be. And if Jesus can save a blind sinner like Bartimaeus, or a wicked sinner like Paul, or sinners like many in this room, if He can save us, then who won't He be able to save? This is what Jesus came to do. He came to save sinners. And if we put our faith and trust in Him, recognizing our own worthlessness, that we do not deserve any amount of grace from God. That's the idea of grace, isn't it? It's unmerited, unearned favor. We don't deserve it. 
We have to recognize that we don't deserve anything from God except for His just wrath. In fact, coming to church doesn't make us deserve God's grace. Reading our Bible does not make us deserve God's grace. Doing all sorts of religious rituals and activities does not make us deserve God's grace. Doing all those religious activities is like putting on a new set of tires on a junk a car that's in the junkyard headed for demolition. It doesn't do any good. In fact, there's not one day, not one second, where we have ever deserved God's grace. That's why it's called grace. It comes from God. It, it, is, it is given to us by God. And we must recognize that we are helpless, worthless sinners before Him. And we need His grace. So we simply do all we can. Like a child, in chapter 10, verse 15, we come with nothing. We do all we can like the blind beggar. We come to Jesus with nothing. I have nothing to offer you, but I'm asking and begging you to heal me. That's what salvation is. Now, what's interesting about the result of this uh, story, the end of the story, it says that immediately he regained his sight. At verse 52, he immediately he gained his, regained his sight and began following him on the road. What's interesting, if you remember from the rest of Mark's Gospel, is that Jesus does not say, don't tell anyone who I am. Remember how Jesus said that all throughout the first seven chapters? Don't tell anyone. Now, was it because He didn't want people to know about Himself? Well, that's part of it. He didn't want people to come and rise up this big riot against Jesus Christ so that He would be prematurely crucified. We talked about that as we studied through uh, those several times, like when He healed the leper. He said, don't tell anybody about what I'm doing. But now here in chapter 10, He doesn't say that. He simply allows this man to come and follow Him. And I think the point is is that now the, the, Jesus recognize, recognizes what's going to happen. Okay, he recognized before what, he, what was going to happen, but He was buying time so that he could, he could take the disciples aside and teach them about what was going to happen. Because what good would, be, would the death of Jesus be if no one knew what it, what it meant? See, the disciples had to understand first. And that's why He t- took these three chapters, I think, to show them what's going on. I'm going to die. Hey, my, my kingdom is coming, yes, but it's still future. It's not going to happen just now. And so... Believers, uh, disciples of Christ, recognize their worthlessness. They they come to Christ and they recognize who Christ is. They come to Christ in faith, and then they follow Christ. And then one more, um, we've been focusing on Bartimaeus primarily and his coming to Christ, his discipleship. But we can't miss out on how compassionate Jesus is in this passage. And we should follow our Lord's example in this way. And that's why I say, number five, disciples of Christ remember that there are people out there. Disciples of Christ remember that there are people out there. Imagine where Jesus Christ is in His life. He is on the road to death. 
He's on the road to crucifixion. Notice how important this, this mission is. Verse 45. What did Jesus come to the earth to do? Verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and notice, to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus was on His way to give His life as a ransom for many. To, to come in many ways to the climax of human history to the point where He is crucified for the sin of the world, for the sin of you and me. This is an important mission. This is the most important mission that He came to accomplish. He's on that road, ready to go to Jerusalem. Disciples are following. Other people are following behind. The triumphal entry is near. His, his betrayal is near. His, his scourging and, and uh, ridicule and, and death is imminent. And yet, notice what He does in our passage. He doesn't go with His blinders on and say, you know what? I'm on a mission. I've got something very important to do. I don't have time for you. He, he was on a mission to save the world, and yet He stopped and had time for this blind beggars. This blind beggar. And you know, sometimes in our Christian life, we are so involved in our mission in life, for, even for Christ, a good mission. And we're here, God, to accomplish your purposes. We're here to, to fulfill your purposes and, and to make you uh, be seen as glorious. We're here to glorify you. And what happens a lot of times in life is we forget the people around us, don't we? We're on a mission to... We can even think about a global perspective. As a church, we have a desire and a mission to reach out not only to our area around us, but to people around the world. And so sometimes we get so involved in mission conferences and praying for our missionaries and special missions offerings that we forget about the mission that we have here in our own town. It's like we're on the road to this great mission, what we're here to do, and we forget who's, who's right next to us at work. We forget about our sibling who still hasn't come to Christ. We forget about our neighbor who, who we see every day and we haven't told them about Christ yet. We don't have time for them. We've we're, we're we got something more important to do. And I think in the example of Jesus, what we see is, yes, it is important to fulfill our mission. But he recognized that, that in that mission, there's also an important part of that that's being fulfilled as he stops and takes time for someone that was worthless. It's like we're pushing our way through law, we're pushing our ways to the pearly gates. We're pushing through lost people. Excuse me, get out of the way. I need to get there. And we should be stopping, taking time, and 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 recognize that there are people out there, true disciples of Christ, recognize, like Jesus, that there are people out there. The story of Bartimaeus provides for us an example of a person who understood who Jesus was, responded immediately with, with genuine faith, uh, called out despite opposition, believed in Jesus Christ, followed Him as an example, followed Him as a disciple, do you recognize where you are spiritually? Do you recognize your state before God? Your position before God? 
that, that we serve a God who is just and holy and who hates sin. And He demands that your sin and my sin be paid for. Do you recognize that you can't pay for your sin on your own unless you spend an eternity in hell for it? Do you recognize your condition? Your worthlessness before God? And then do you recognize who Jesus is? That He stands really in between you and God. That, that God is holy. You are unholy. No amount of good works can meet up to what He demands. And yet Christ stands in the middle. And He takes upon Himself all of that wrath and He fulfills all of the holiness that you need to be accepted before God. And now all you have to do is accept Jesus Christ. Do you recognize who Jesus is? That He is God come in human flesh to die for you. Jesus uses this miracle as a means to teach the disciples that faith does not come by hearing. I'm sorry, faith does not come by seeing. The, the, the beggar was blind, right? It doesn't come by seeing. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10.17 says. This blind man didn't have to see Jesus to believe. He simply heard the Word about Him and trusted in, in Jesus uh, to be His Savior. And if Bartimaeus received his sight, then you and I can receive our sight as well. If you haven't, I would encourage you that you need to, to put your faith in Jesus Christ today. Come to Him. Recognize your worthlessness. Recognize who He is. That He stands in your place. Fulfills all what God demands. And, and, and allows, you, allows Himself to take upon uh, Him all the wrath that you deserved. And if you will trust Him today, I can assure you there is no greater joy that you will have in this life or the life to come because it will culminate. Your discipleship, your service of Him will culminate in, in a recognition of Him for all eternity and, and a great praise to Him and even a greater joy than you have now. Won't you turn to Christ if you have not done it? And if you have, are you following Him? Are you like Bartimaeus? Are you willing to set it all aside, recognize that there are people around there and that you're on a mission to follow Christ, but to, but to recognize that there are people out there as well? May God be praised for His great grace that comes through Jesus Christ as He provides freely the offer of salvation to all who will come to Him and believe. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, it has been good to reflect on Your grace. We can't get enough of it to think of where we should be and where we are now because of Your grace. Lord, we in no way deserve what we, we get. If we got what we deserved, we would be from the, the very first sin that we committed, we would be spending the rest of our days in hell. Because You demand perfection. And we can't meet that demand on our own. And that's why we need Your grace. That's why we need a Savior. And it's so uh, great to see that Jesus 
does not have his blinders on. Committed only to his final goal. But he recognizes that there are people out there and that he's willing to serve them. He did that when he came to this earth. He's willing to serve us. And it, it is amazing to think that the Savior, Jesus Christ, who had a part in creating the world and is sustaining it through His hand and and who will receive final exaltation when all knees will bow to Him because He is the King of the universe. It is amazing to think that He would bend down, come to this lowly earth, be ridiculed and, and be set aside as a peasant or as an unwanted slave, be treated like a worthless servant and be killed for our sake. It's amazing to think of what a great Savior we have. And because of that, we praise Your name, our Father, because You have designed it all and You have accepted His, His sacrifice. We know that You have accepted it because You raised Him from the dead and that was the authentication that His sacrifice was real and it would work. And we pray that if there are any here who do not know Jesus as their Savior, that today would be the day. It would be the beginning of a great uh, life in Christ that culminates in the life to come when many people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation will worship the Lamb and praise Him for His great grace. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. We pray that it would come quickly. But we know You still have people here in this world that, that need to come to Christ first. And so we pray that those who need to come because You have chosen them would come. And may we as believers recognize the lost condition of, of many in this world. The majority of our world is headed on a path to hell just as we were. And we need to give them the message of the Gospel so that their faith can come through hearing as well. It certainly is, is good for us to live uh, a good example for them to follow, but it's not enough. We need to tell them about Jesus. We need to give them the Gospel. So we pray that You give us the strength to do that. May You be praised in how we serve You and how we respond to this uh, this uh, understanding of the Scriptures that we've seen today. We pray it in Jesus' name.